Hello, rhetorical listeners. Welcome to the season two finale of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. This episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast is the inaugural installment in our series of Keystone Perspectives, a capstone podcast. This series of podcast episodes serves as an inclusive space specifically designed to highlight the life and career work of distinguished scholars and professionals working in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. Scholars featured as a part of the Keystone Perspectives, a capstone podcast series, are people who enjoy discussing the development of their scholarship, their pedagogy, and their service to the fields and disciplines of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. Our inaugural Keystone Perspectives episode features a discussion with Dr. Samantha Blackman. And I think that one of the things that was most important to us was that this was not just a scholarly endeavor in the traditional sense, but we we brought all voices to the table. A gamer can be anybody. A gamer can be anybody who plays games. And what, what counts as a game? It can be anything from Call of Duty and The Division to Mass Effect to playing Farmville on your phone. These are all games. You'll hear more from Sam in a bit. As season two concludes, I would like to share with you all some superlatives concerning the podcast. Since its inception, the Big Rhetorical Podcast has become available on nine different platforms and has garnered over 1,750 listens. The Big Rhetorical Podcast maintains an international listenership with listeners in the United States, India, South Korea, Portugal, the UK, Greenland, Samoa, Puerto Rico, Turkey, the Netherlands, France, Pakistan, Brazil, Czechia, Nigeria, Norway, Spain, Poland, the UAE, Canada, Sweden, Greece, New Zealand, and Australia. Season 2 saw the Big Rhetorical Podcast address topics timely to the field and the discipline, including episodes devoted to the job market for international students, the National Archives and Records Administration controversy in January 2020, and the ongoing COVID-19 global pandemic. Season 2 also featured new robust collaborations with Invisible Histories Project and the Coalition of Feminist Scholars in the History of Rhetoric and Composition. We hit the road and wound up at the Southeastern Writing Centers Association Conference at UAB in Birmingham, Alabama, and we talked to Dr. John Gallagher about his book, Update Culture. Perhaps most importantly, we published seven Emerging Scholars episodes during Season 2. All of this really is accomplished because of your unwavering support of this podcast. As the podcast continues to grow, evolve, and expand, know that your support is never taken for granted. Thank you so much for supporting me in this endeavor. Samantha Blackman, she, her, is a parent, gamer of more than four decades and games researcher who studies rhetoric at the intersection of video games and identity politics. She loves playing games with her daughter and talking about games with anyone who will listen or watch on stream. Mixer.com slash Safista with two Fs. She is passionate about games and making the games community a more inclusive space. Samantha loves video games, books, crafting, and coffee. Definitely coffee. She is also the co-founder of the Not Your Mama's Gamer podcast and blog and the editor-in-chief of Not Your Mama's Gamer, a middle state feminist game studies journal. I hope you enjoy my conversation 
with Samantha Blackman. Wow, that's always a good question. Uh, what about my mornings? I'm not a morning person. I'm, okay. I'm a stereotypical gamer. Um, I'm not a morning person. Um, I get up in the mornings, but I but I dread it every morning. Um, so I've had coffee. <laughs> Lots of it. <laughs> Me uh, too. <laughs> and uh, I also homeschool my 11 year old. I also have to get an 11 year old up and going in the morning. Um, so I, you know, got her up and got her going toward breakfast <laughs> um, and uh, situated. Like, here's the first things that you can. This is the first thing that you can do this morning while I'm doing a call that you don't need my help for. <laughs> um, I gotcha. Yep. Yep. Uh, so that's uh, that's what my morning's been like so far. That's cool. Sounds like a pretty easy, well, I'd I say pretty easy when I don't really know. I don't have kids, but <laughs> <laughs> you're a native of Detroit, Michigan? I am. When was the last time you were back in Detroit? Mm, last year? Yeah, it's, last it was year? last year. Yeah, last 2019. Year? Yeah. So, a couple of months ago, yeah. You were born and raised there, still have family there, I guess? Oh, yeah. Born and raised. Uh, family still lives there. My mom still lives there. That's awesome. What does your mom do? Uh, she's retired. Um, uh-huh. she's, a, she's a healthcare professional. Um, she uh, she's a healthcare professional. She ran a home healthcare agency. Um, that was the last thing she did before uh, before she retired. Um, but she has a long history of working with um, well in the uh, home healthcare industry later in her career. But she ran a women and children's clinic. Um, in a hospital before that. So she, and that was like in the 60s and 70s, which was huge, right? Mm-hmm. To do women's health care uh, in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, but so she has this like long history of, of kind of uh, healthcare, um, healthcare work in the, in the Detroit area. So you saw that growing up, you knew what that meant to the community? Oh yeah. Um, I, I remember going to work with her um, a lot when I was when I was younger, um, and that was always a, that was always a huge thing for me um, to be able to to go to work and see what my mom did um, and see the work that she did and the people uh, she worked with. It was it was pretty amazing. I'm sure that played a pretty big part into your decision to stay in Detroit and get your PhD at Wayne State. But I wonder. Let's go back a little bit further, or a little bit further than the PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, where'd you do your undergrad at? I split my undergrad. <laughs> Me did, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was in uh, D.C. and I went to Howard um, for part of my undergrad. And then I was a business major because I had really strong math skills, which was really weird for an English, excuse me, really weird for someone who kind of lands in an English uh, related profession. Uh, but I had really uh-huh. strong math skills. They tracked me toward accounting. So I went to Howard uh, and I majored in accounting. What um, made you want to leave Detroit and go to Washington, D.C.? It was an HBCU. And I gotcha. wanted to go to a historically black college. I looked around at what was available and which schools had uh, strong business programs. Um, and that's how I landed in D.C. I imagine growing up in Detroit... Right, in the 60s and 70s and getting pushed towards accounting and business, being a business major. Certainly GM in the audio industry perhaps had a little bit to do with that? Uh, well, probably. Uh, uh, people in my family uh, work in the auto industry. I have a strong connections uh, to the auto industry uh, with folks in my family working um, specifically in the factories. So I imagine that probably did. A lot of things... A lot of things in Detroit during that time, especially, mm-hmm. were influenced by the auto industry, even if we didn't think about it in that way. Mm-hmm. The, like even the ways and I look back on it now, like even the ways that even the ways that you think about cars and car purchases was affected by um, life in the auto industry. And knowing that that purchasing cars um, 
kept food on the table for folks in your family, right? Because this is something that was necessary. Um, And early on, knowing that, you know, you bought, you bought domestic, you didn't buy imported when you started talking about vehicles, because, Mm. you know, that, that was, again, what put food on the table. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't doubt it, even if I if I don't think about it specifically or didn't think about it specifically, it probably did play a, a huge a huge part in it. So you're at Howard, but you mentioned that you split your undergrad. So mm-hmm. where did you wind up heading to, and what prompted that move? So the interesting thing was is that, like I said, I was a business major, was always really good at math, but I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> I didn't. I did not enjoy it. Um, so I was, you know, like I said, I was there, I was taking all kinds of, you know, I was taking all kinds of math classes. I was taking stats and calculus and all these classes and I, I did well in them, but it wasn't fun. So I would, I was take also taking a lot of, you know, just our core classes and I would do these like really strange things in my core classes. Like we would have an assignment. The assignment would be to write a research paper. So I would buy, I would write like these re oh i it was trying to think of which class it was um it was an economics class and we had to write a research paper and i wrote a research based play for my economics paper <laughs> and i got called to the teacher's office no my professor was like he goes to me during office hours and i'm like oh god i'm in trouble and he's like okay so here's here's the deal you know you have everything you need here for this assignment you get an A, but I don't think this is where you're supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, I, I don't understand. It's math. It's do. It's dealing with economics. It's dealing with, and I was like, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is my strong suit. He's like, yeah, this doesn't feel like where you want to be. And he's like, I'm gonna make. I'm gonna make a suggestion. This is what I want you to do next semester. I want you to take. I want you to take some more literature courses. I want you to take some courses and explore what else is out there. I want you to take some writing courses. And I'm like, okay, okay, I'll try it. That's kind of where I found my sweet spot. Found that I was much happier there. And once I made that decision, that is also when I made the decision um, to move home. Um, or when I say move home, uh, move back to Detroit. Um, and I moved back to Detroit uh, and got my own apartment and started a degree in English at Wayne State. And so you stayed, did you stay at Wayne State for your master's degree as well? Yes, because because at the time, Wayne had a non-terminal PhD. Uh, I should stop for a second and say, when I finished my bachelor's degree, I took a job teaching in the Detroit public school system. That I was teaching in the Detroit public school system for, um, I taught there about three years. Um, I thought that was what I wanted to do. High school Uh, classes? No, uh, actually, I was teaching elementary school. Elementary Uh, school? mm Mm-hmm. What grade? I taught one, three, and five. um, One, and and five. That's that's the way it was listed, but one of those years, I taught... um, I taught special ed. Um, The emotionally impaired is what they call it, EI classes. Yeah, that was an experience. That was an experience. So that's what you did between your uh, after your bachelor's before you went back for your master's degree. Well, I was still taking some classes at the same time um, I because I I was not I was not an education major um, when I was in undergrad. So I I needed to take the classes that I needed to take to kind of uh, meet the requirements to uh, keep my job. <laughs> at I, the time. I see. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and that's also when I, I figured out that, yeah, I wanted to do what I was doing, but I also figured out that what was more important for me, um, was not teaching students, but teaching teachers, um, because I was working in, uh, an area of the city that was, uh, largely transient, largely African-American, um, and largely staffed in terms of the teachers, at least in my school, by uh, folks who were just kind of biding their time for retirement uh, because it was an area that had transitioned from it, it was an area that had been stri- had been hit like largely by white flight. 
in uh, in the earlier days. So uh, there were a lot of the teachers had just moved further out uh, in that same direction into the suburbs, and they didn't know how to reach the students that were currently in that that area's population. And the students knew it. So it became a thing for me at that point. I was like, okay, so here's where the need is. There are ama- there are lots of amazing teachers out there um, that can do amazing work. So they don't need me to be in the classroom, but what they need me to be, not in the elementary school classroom, but they need me in a different classroom, uh, in a classroom where I can teach teachers how they can best reach different populations of students. So that's when I decided that my grad school curriculum needed to make a shift. And that's when I went back to grad school full time. Uh, yeah, that was a, that was a, that was a big that was a big. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But you mentioned this thing, this idea of that you 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 discovered that you liked teaching teachers mm-hmm. and it. And, and that's something that I um, I think is interesting because not everyone can do that. Like just because you're a good teacher doesn't mean that you're good at te- teaching other teachers. Like just because you're the best basketball player in the world doesn't mean that you can be the best coach of basketball in the world. So do you, do you kind of buy what buy that and and how does how does that reflect the way that you perhaps took on that role? So I think that the probably the biggest thing was is, is that it didn't just like so it sounds like it just clicked in my head one day. Well, it yeah. did kind of click in my head one day, but I found that I was much younger than most of the other faculty in my school. Um, one because mm-hmm. I was in my very early twenties, mm-hmm. um, and I was African American, and so were ninety nine percent of the students in the school. I could reach the students in ways that they couldn't. And the students felt, and and it probably didn't hurt that I looked all of 12. Um, <laughs> at the, I was, I was, I, I looked very young in my early twenties. Um, and, okay. and several times uh, when I first started teaching there before like the, the parents or when new parents would come in, cause like I said, it was a largely transient area. So uh, a lot of the students were, were living in shelters in the area. So they would be there for the amount of time that the shelters would allow them to be there. And then they would rotate to another shelter in another school. And you would see them again, you know, you know, three or six months down the line when they rotated back into that other shelter. Um, so often, so it wasn't a very stable educational experience for them anyway. Um, but they, I think it was because, uh, oh, I see I'm, I'm squirreling cause I haven't had enough coffee yet this morning, <laughs> but I had several parents, uh, actually go and talk to the principal, uh, because they thought that they had a middle schooler teaching their kids. Oh, wow. Uh, cause I looked very young <laughs> and, and that might've helped. Right. Uh, but the students felt comfortable talking to me um also because one I was younger um two I was also African American so they felt mm-hmm. more comfortable talking to me about what was going on in their lives right. um yeah. so I could reach the students in ways that other faculty felt that they couldn't so they would come to me uh to talk to me about how they could deal with some of the issues they were facing in their classrooms because they knew that the students would listen to me when they wouldn't listen to other to them necessarily um, because we had, a, we had a different kind of relationship because we had a different kind of relationship. And that was, that was when, I think for me, that was when it clicked that I had something else to offer. So you're in graduate school pursuing a master's degree, restructuring some of your curriculum classes and requirements. Uh, what'd you do your, what was your master's thesis about? Um, uh, my master's thesis was actually, it was interesting. It's, uh, the role of, uh, women in slave narratives. Uh, uh, okay. Master's thesis was. Yeah. So that's gonna be fiction, literary studies. Mm-hmm. And then you make the move to rhetoric and composition in your PhD work. I did. Well, so here's the the really weird thing, um, is that ret comp was like new. That was a new thing because that would have been, uh, that would have been the very early nineties. Right. So this was like this new thing and people were people were doing it. But I never heard of this before. Right. So and I'm like, I I don't know this thing 
I don't right. know. <laughs> for a lot of people, I think even today, it's like, get the mat. For me, I don't want to speak for everyone. Like, my experience is representative. But through talking to people on the podcast, um, it feel, I feel like some people do their MA in literature and then they get a job adjuncting or they get a job teaching first year writing. And it just opens their eyes to this entirely different field that's doing all these unique things. That's how it was for me, anyway. Mm hmm. Yeah, so like it's like I said, it was something because when I was doing my masters, it it started out as something totally different. It started out as something totally different, and it was it was only when I got into discussions of pedagogy that and where I saw discussions of pedagogy happening were in the English department, so it made sense to me to stay there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until after I until after I finished my master's and that was at the point I was like, yeah, I'm going to go back to school full time. I'm going to, you know, quit my job. That was a big, that was a big decision. Um, And become a TA. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Uh, And that was when I started to see what else was being offered. Because I mean, when you think about it, I mean, I was getting up every morning at, you know, five 6 o'clock, which is ridiculous for a person like me. Um, and driving, <laughs> you know, and driving all the way across town from the west side of town to the east side of town to um, to teach. And then I'd have to drive all the way back downtown to take my own classes. And I was taking my own classes at night and and trying to live a life at the same time. Um, so I had no time, like really in the department to like learn department culture and see what other people were doing. So it wasn't until after I quit my job and had more time in that space that I was able to learn what else was really out there and really available. So, and I couldn't decide once I saw that like this retcom thing was a thing. I was like, this is, this is a thing. I'm, I'm really <laughs> interested in, in what, you know, what it has to say about pedagogy. Um, and specifically what it has to say about pedagogy and people of color or African-American folks. Um, and that's where my own interest and my own kind of history with um, attending an HBCU kind of came in. I got really interested in like histories of pedagogy and histories of instruction um, at HBCUs. But I didn't know if that was an area where and, and I and I actually the funny thing is, and I think back to this and I actually mentioned it to a professor that I had at the time who told me that's uh, that's I, and I said, I'm, I'm interested in doing this as a dissertation. So she told me that's not viable. Uh, and I was like, wow. OK, OK. Um, so <laughs> I. Um, I did coursework. I actually finished the coursework in both literature and rec comp because rec comp was really where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had been told that the work I wanted to do in rec comp couldn't be done. So I kept doing the the, the coursework in literature because I was like, well, I guess I'm going to get a literature degree. And it wasn't until I was like well into, into coursework that I found kind of my niche and found the right folks to work with to do the project that I wanted to do for the dissertation. And that's when I ultimately made the decision um, to do the, to do the dissertation in rec comp. Who are those folks? Um, so I'm, I'm the person that I kind of landed with was my, was my dissertation advisor. Uh, it was Richard Marbach um, mm. who was doing amazing work, um, who was doing amazing work in rec comp um, and looking at, you know, looking at, looking at power, looking at what things had to say and looking at, you know, amazing things that I was like, wow, who knew that you could like write about the rhetoric of the Joe Lewis fist in the city, <laughs> in the city of Detroit. Right. And I'm like, that's the kind of work that I want to do because that these things that we see as just, you know, monuments or artifacts or what have you, they have a greater meaning to the people around them. And we need to think about what those things mean. So, yeah, that's kind of where I landed. Right. So I had this really kind of interesting dissertation committee uh, because, as I said, I was interested in in doing history of writing instruction at historically black colleges. So this was like my work in minority rhetorics. But that didn't Mm. exist in the 90s. That was not a thing. (laughs) So I was like pulling from 
like different places. So I have faculty from rhetoric and composition. I have faculty from Afri uh, African-American studies. I have faculty from um, literature, right? Because a lot of what I was going to be looking at was literary based as well, because that was where the rhetoric happened um, mm -hmm. in the, in the time periods that I looked at, because, you know, that was, that was what was open to folks of color. What, what time periods did you look at? Um, so I did uh, two. I did two universities. I did Tuskegee, um, okay. because uh, my my uh, interestingly enough, my um, my maternal the maternal side of my family is from Alabama, um, okay. and I did Howard because I knew Howard. Um, so I looked at the history of writing instruction from the founding those as educational institutions, and I say educational institutions because Tus and I wanted to do them separately because they were two, diff two very different kinds of institutions. Because uh, Tuskegee actually started as a normal school um, oh. and, not a, and, and slowly became a university. What's um, a normal school? Um, normal schools were schools that were started uh, kind of uh, after the Civil War. Um, and basically, Tuskegee as an institution was, was started at more of a started more as an institution that was meant to uh, teach uh, African-Americans very specifically. Oh gosh, how do I put this? How to behave. <laughs> um, so there were, there were courses that taught things and there was like a strong focus on, you know, here's how you, you know, here's how you deal with hygiene. Here's how you deal with basic maintenance and composition Composition as a thing at Tuskegee as a normal school started out of how to do things like write a bill of sale, mm. right? It was it was not meant for classically trained uh, folks, but folks who were not educated at all to kind of bring them up to a certain standard to make them acceptable. And I use scare quotes there, acceptable um, to a certain to a certain society. Yeah, so it was interesting to look at an institution that had started that way and started to produce teachers because that was ultimately what they wanted to do. Um, started to produce teachers and then become a full-fledged university uh, by the end. Um, and then Howard, which was seen as a more, uh, as a more classically designed university. Um, mm -hmm. So looking at those two in comparison uh, was really interesting for me in my project. What part of Alabama you got family in or did your mom come from? Um, so yes, yeah, my mom was born there, um, and uh, my grandmother and grandfather uh, were both from that area. Luverne County, Alabama. Luverne County, Alabama. I'm from Birmingham, oh, Alabama. Okay. So not, too far. I was, not too far. I was born and raised in Birmingham. I mm -hmm. uh, spent the first 30 years of my life there, and I actually, um, I don't know if you have spent any time at all in Alabama, I uh, have. but. You have. Okay. So I, 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 you mentioned that you split your undergrad. I split my undergrad. I started out at Troy University, which is just a hop, skip, and a jump from Laverne. Mm -hmm. um, and then I uh, made my way up to the University of Montevallo. So uh, that's an interesting connection. Uh, when was the last time you ever spent any time down in Alabama? Oh, it's been a while. Let's see. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's been at least 20 years since I've been in Alabama. All right. Well, this whole time you're working um, as uh, on your undergraduate, as growing up through your graduate work, you're playing games. And so, yes. <laughs> so I feel like, you know, we're approaching a half hour into this conversation and we haven't even talked about video games or games yet. I don't want to say video games. We haven't mm -hmm. even talked about games yet. Mm -hmm. Um you know, I, 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 when I was kind of doing a little research, a little writing out some guide for how I wanted this conversation to go, I was like, don't ask the question, how have games impacted your life? <laughs> because, <laughs> because I imagine that 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 that, that is a, a loaded question, a question that's cliche and probably impossible to answer. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if I I wonder if I could ask a similar question. What are you playing right now and why? See, that's the answer that I thought that might be coming, but I didn't know how to get around it. <laughs> that's okay. Where I am right now, um, and I was just funny because because we reported recorded the latest episode of our podcast last night uh -huh. is I am I am I've got the MMO bug again. 
um, the uh-huh. MMORPG bug again. So um, lately I've been playing a lot of uh, MMO stands for massively multiplayer online. Um, and there are different kinds of MMOs. Uh, I'm a fan of MMORPGs, so role-playing mm-hmm. games. So uh-huh. massively multiplayer online role-playing games is kind of where the bug that I have right now. Um, and I am playing um, Final Fantasy XIV and a, um, a new... A new MMO that's coming out next week called Bless Unleashed. So yeah, those are I'm playing those a lot, but I'm always playing other games as well. I am still a fan of shooters, um, or a, again a fan of shooters. I was fan of shooters when I was really young, like um, Call and, of Duty stuff like that. Like yeah, like Call of Duty. Um, right now I'm a huge fan of the of the Division, which is a third it's a third person perspective instead of a first person perspective. Um, mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, the the one that I'm playing um, is the Division Two that is all about uh, basically it's all about the the collapse of the government and rebuilding <laughs> and rebuilding. Um, and so that that's kind of where I am with that one. And I think that lots of things draw me into games. Um, narrative is a thing that always draws me into games. I don't play shooters just because I like to shoot things, mm-hmm. um, but I generally play shooters because they have. Um, they have a story that draws me in. Hi everyone, my name is Paul Cook and I am at Indiana University Kokomo. Would you like to join Charles on the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making and rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a conference to promote? Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. As we embark upon the newest season of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please feel free to check out older episodes and our newest episodes wherever you get podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Anchor FM. If you have any questions about the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find the Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at TheBigRet. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. Now back to the show. Actually, what I was I was gonna ask, what what made when did you turn to games? Was it a time, I, mean, I guess, in your life when you were developing a love for narrative? So no, actually. No, actually, <laughs> I should not make that assumption. No. Uh, so here's the thing: is that I'm I'm a long time gamer, like 40 plus years. I started I played my first digital game in 1976. Which game was it? I actually have it tattooed on my arm. <laughs> so you may, you may actually rem- may remember seeing them. They they recently like redid them like and made some like little retro ones. But they were the old handheld. Uh, Coleco made one and Mattel made one. Okay. Um, they were the little handheld sports games, and they had like what to see. They had baseball, football, and hockey. Uh, were the three that uh, me and my cousins had. Uh, so you know, each of us had one, so we would trade them back and forth. Um, so that was my first digital game, and that was in 1976. Because there was no narrative there. I mean, it, it was yeah. just us kind of playing and competing. 
um, at that point is what it was. I'm also very competitive. Uh, so I was playing and competing. And that's how my gaming actually started. That's how my gaming actually started. Is It was little blips. That was it. Little red blips that went across the screen. Um, so and taught us sports. <laughs> <laughs> so what other games have you played? I know that you said that your favorite game of all time is Grim Fandango. Mm-hmm. Is that still true? So my favorite, there's there's two um, like all time favorites games that have a special place in my heart. Um, okay. And they're both point and Which click are games. they and why? So Grim Fandango is one. All right. And why um, is that? Uh, because that was like the first game that where I saw that was that took place in a world that was not centered on whiteness. Okay. It is about a he's a skeleton, a dead dude who ferries people to the afterlife, um, and it it takes place. It's it's it also takes place. It's got a a, a noir feel to it, a film noir. Mm. Um, like it's a mystery and I love mysteries. It's my, like my secret, my secret shame, my dirty little, my dirty little <laughs> secret. Um, and it takes place on the day of the dead. And, and it's, it's all about the uh, Mexican folks. It's all about Mexican folks. Um, so it is centered in a culture that is not where we usually see games centered, especially in not- the nineties when this game came out. I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's what I was. No, I'm sorry. That's what I was going to ask. Like, this is, sounds pretty, groundbreaking for i think the late night or the 90s late 90s mm-hmm. when when grim fandango came out like yep. and i i know that that representation in video games is a huge part of the work that you're doing yes uh, that you do and we're going to get to that in a minute but i do want to hear what was that second game that has a uh has a big impact on you or one of your favorites um it is the longest journey uh which again the longest journey the longest journey yep which also comes out about the same time um <laughs> It is uh, the the protagonist is a young girl um, named April April Ryan who is kind of the thing that is keeping the world in balance. At least this is what we this we'll put it that way. I don't want to be I want it to be a spoiler for anyone who's keeping the world in balance. And it is all about the balance between science. Well, how do we put this? Um, logic and magic. Right. Mm. So it's all about a balance, balancing these two things. Um, and this is another thing that I have tattooed on my arm. Right. Is the symbol of the balance from this game, because I think that that balance in many ways is something that we all struggle with. And it is it is always that that balance that keeps us from from, you know, us ourselves being ripped apart and our world from being ripped apart. Mm. Um, again, representation was huge. Um, in this game, because not only do we have a protagonist who is a young female, she's like 19, I think, when the game starts. Um, but uh, her her guide in in figuring out how the balance works is is a, a Hispanic male, um, and she lives like on she lives on actually like this. She lives on the 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 line that separates. <laughs> logic and magic um on a, and it's called the border house the house she lives in a boarding house called the border house um mm-hmm. that is owned uh by two lesbians um who are a couple also first time i had ever seen i'm like oh god queer representation <laughs> on top of everything else i'm here for this so it's it's kind of interesting that you know it, it makes sense that these are are like my, my the two games that mean the most to me um cuz they are all about representation they are yeah, and you're seeing it. yourself in the characters now. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like you can see you can see people of color, you can see queer people, you can see older people, you can see people who are disabled. Um, you can see all of these things um being played out in the in these narratives, um, which is pretty amazing. So I I said a phrase earlier, I said something like, um, you your research focuses on representation and gaming yes could you parse that out a bit and explain um, some of the research that you do uh, you're not necessarily methods and methodologies but the things that you're interested in looking at when it comes to representation and gaming mm-hmm. so I, I think this this goes back to the question you weren't going to ask me is like how games have an impact on my life <laughs> okay uh, 
And that's and that's interesting, right? Because games have always been there, even that when I didn't recognize they were there. Uh huh. Um, and I talk about uh, being what does that able... mean exactly? Well, it, when I talk about specifically being able to kind of reach the students in the elementary school that I worked in, mm. um, it was because of games. Um, we played a lot of games, um, not just digital games, but analog games. Um, and that was that was how I got them to do the things that they didn't want to do. So we would set up game shows. We would in the classroom. Right. Um, and we would have panels of folks who were in charge of, you know, of being contestants. And that was how we quizzed on things. Right. Because they didn't want to take quizzes. They didn't want to do testing in the normal way because that just was not where they were and they were really intimidated by it. But when we set it up as a game show and they were contestants on a show and there was something to win, then it was okay. Uh, We had a a very small computer lab (laughs) with very old computers, Uh, but they would run some text-based games. Mm. Um, So we would go into the computer lab and we would play text-based games and that would get them to practice their reading um, and they had to read it. They had to read at a certain speed in order to in, in order to kind of progress in the time that we had allotted in that space. So they worked on that. But then they also were able to see that choose your own adventure books lined up with the same kind of text based games we were playing in the computer lab. So we could read choose your own adventure books mm-hmm. anytime we wanted in the classroom, even when we didn't have computer lab time. Um, so games were there then. And then when I went back to grad school and I was teaching (laughs) and I was teaching, I was teaching first year comp and I was able to teach African-American literature. I started to work with moves and muds because Mm. we could then build spaces, right? We could build spaces that reflected um, that reflected the narratives that we were reading in class. Totally unintentional because I had no idea that games were even a thing that you could because they weren't. A thing that, you know, people were really using in the classroom outside of like Oregon Trail and Mavis Beacon and stuff like that. It was around at the time, Um, but not in those ways. And it it was it was interesting because we also had students who were who were young and coming to terms to uh, coming to terms with who they are um, in terms of a lot of different things, especially things like queerness that were able to um, safely explore those things in games when they couldn't in their own lives. Um, so games have always been there kind of throughout my like educational career. So, I mean, that's, that's just kind of the way it was and it's always been. And it wasn't until, it wasn't until I had, you know, until like 2001 maybe 2000, 2001, when it occurred to me that games was something that I could do with my own scholarship. So 2001, you start working games into your scholarship. Mm-hmm. 2011, with Alex Lane, mm-hmm. you start Not Your Mama's Gamer. Yeah. <laughs> and that's an entirely new endeavor. What prompted you to move the work that you were doing and games and marrying these things and then starting Not Your Mama's Gamer? Like, what, What's your mission with that endeavor? Wow. Um, that was more of a challenge. Um, Alex, a Alex, challenge. Okay. It's it more of a challenge. Um, Alex and I were, she was a grad student, um, of course at the time. And we were, we were working together and, and ta- she was taking classes and we were talking about games, women in games. Right. Um, and we talked a lot about women in technology, even before women in games, women in the tech industry and looking at things like harassment and looking at things like company policies and um, how to keep women safe in the tech industry. Because, you know, in the, the early 2000s, we had a lot of women who were being driven out of the tech industry simply because they were women. But looking at how this how this happened and what companies could do to kind of help uh, keep women safe in these spaces. But we also started we were both listening to a lot of po- podcasts at the time mm. and I was like, you know, what really pisses me off is that a lot of times I'm listening to podcasts and it's just a bunch of white dudes talking about talking about <laughs> games and totally glossing over all the things that I find important or making fun of the things that I find important. And Alex and I were sitting in my office uh, and she goes, why don't you start your own podcast? And I was like, 
with what time and she's like no no you should start your own podcast she was like it would be fabulous for you to talk about to talk about things that you that you teach in class and I was like I'll make you a deal I'll do it if you do it with me (laughs) because I was like no grad student in their right mind is going to say okay let's take on all this extra work um and she looked at me like what have I just gotten myself into I'm like no seriously if you do it with me I'll do it uh and she looked at me she went okay and I was like, oh, crap, she just said yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that was actually in 2000. That would have been the year before. It was 2010. So we spent a good six months or so mapping out stuff, planning stuff, thinking about the space, thinking about names and branding and all this other stuff. Because Alex had Alex had like a lot of, uh, she had a lot of, thoughts about these things because her her dad worked in business mm. um so she this was something that was that she had grown up with um me like i said i'm, I'm totally different my mom was a healthcare professional um, <laughs> so it was like man i have no idea how to do this stuff i mean i had i worked i did i was a business major but that was like strictly the numbers side and then we launched at the beginning of the year we launched at the beginning of the year the next year um and have been going strong ever since a decade now, almost a decade now. Almost, yeah. It's unbelievable. What are some of the things that you're most proud of, the work that, uh, can, the work that you've done with Not Your Mama's Gamer in the last decade? I think what I'm most proud of um, would be, one, uh, the implica- amplification of voices. All too mm-hmm. often in the academy, um, we talk about people and not to people. And I think that one of the things that, was most important to us was that this was not just a scholarly endeavor in the traditional sense, but we, we brought all voices to the table. Um, and it's something that I still strive to do, right? So it's not just about scholars writing about games, um, but it's about gamers. It's about game developers. Um, it's about the people who experience games in a different way. And that's been super important um, even like as we've gone forward and and um, started NYMG as a feminist game studies, um, as a feminist game studies journal is to that this is a journal that is not just for academics. Right. It is a journal for for gamers as well, for people who want to talk about their experiences with games um, in different ways. So between that and the fact that we also have a charitable initiative um, mm. where we still we still do charity gaming marathons. I still do charity gaming marathons. That's uh, gaming for good, right? Gaming for good, yeah. yeah. It's bringing people in. Um, it's bringing people in to show that gamers can do something else, right? That is not the, the not the typical what people think is oh gamers do this, uh, but bring people in to to. to Work for bringing awareness to and raising money for um, charities, and I try to choose charities that are early on. We did we did a lot of the the, the usual extra life, right? Um, we did a lot of extra life, but I've also worked started to work toward doing other smaller charities that revolve around um, other issues that need awareness, because there's there's tons of people who do extra life. Not that extra life is not great. Extra life is amazing. But I also want to put forward other things um, like the Flint water crisis, like um, suicide, it's like suicide rates among teens, queer teens in the United States. Like we did a, uh, we did a marathon for kind kids and uh, kids in need of defense to raise money um, for um, children who have, for lack of a better word, been abducted. Right. And are being held by our government um, in in the modern day equivalent of concentration camps because their parents are immigrants. So providing legal defense for those children. So choosing these smaller charities that are dealing with issues that are very important in this moment. And that's been huge for me. That's been huge for me. What can video game developers tech companies do to amplify marginalized voice and more, I don't want to, I don't know if the word is accurately, but it's the word I'm going to use more accurately 
represent the the folks playing their games. It's, it is, and it's, that's the thing is, it's all about representation. It's about representation in games. It's about representation in game development spaces. Okay. Um, it's about representation everywhere, right? On on in, in content in content creation spaces. That's been huge, right? When we start to talk about who gets seen in what light, right? And that's that's where my current research is is looking mm-hmm. at content creators. Because content creators now hold a different role, right? When we talk about streamers, when we talk about YouTubers, when we talk about folks that we see putting forth games um, in a different way, because more people, more hours of live stream game content are consumed every year than more hours than television. If you think about it, I mean, if you know, if you know younger children, um, if you know younger children, they watch YouTube. They don't watch television. They watch like toy unboxings, video game, uh, video game gameplay, all these different things. So content creators are kind of the new superstars in many ways. Um, And representation in those spaces is is huge and it's hugely important. But those places are those spaces are still dominated by young cishet white men. And that, in my mind, puts forth a very specific idea of what a gamer is and who should game. Visibility and representation in those spaces, I think, is key to improving relationships amongst folks, a diverse group of folks in in the games community, period. And that includes the games industry. Because this doesn't just happen because this doesn't happen because women and people of color and older folks and queer folks don't exist in these spaces. It exists. uh, It happens because they're not put to the fore in these spaces. Um, And that's the fault of a lot of that's the fault of the, the fault of a lot of folks, not only the platforms that that host these people, but also the games industry. And that they make a decision on who gets access or early access to uh, to their content anyway, to their games anyway, right? Who they who they bring on as being the face of their product. Inevitably, someone's going to hear this this conversation that we're having and and, and want to know more about you know video games, or I'm sorry. I want to know more about gaming and pedagogy, gaming research. So I wonder, two questions. First question, mm-hmm. what's something that you might say to someone who is interested in, in, in discovering more or implementing gaming pedagogy in their writing classrooms or in any classroom, really? There's, ton, there's tons of scholarship now um, mm. on games, games in the classroom. Right. Um, find something that's interesting. Not only are there, you know, not only are there tons of like essays and books, but, you know, there's lots of folks who post like talks online or talk about um, or social media is huge. Right. For games scholars or maybe it's just the game scholars that I know that hang out (laughs) on social media. Um, But there's there's all kinds of like forays into it to see what's interesting to you and grab a book. Grab a book, grab a collection. I always say grab a collection first because a collection, if it's like something brand new um, to you, grab a collection because that gives you access to, instead of one voice, you know, 15 voices, 20 voices. Um, that, And then you can choose from those who you, whose work you might want to delve into more. Um, go to, there's, and if you go to your, your go to your, like your uh, fields conferences, there'll they'll usually be someone there who's talking about games uh, in some way, shape or form. Find it. Go to a session. Listen to what they have to say. Listen to the conversations that take place around it. Ask questions. And more importantly, play some games. Uh, if you're not a gamer, pick it up. Check, check it out. See what there is out there to offer. Um, I'm a huge believer in the fact that and I know that this is some people are like, well, not really. I think that I think you have to be a gamer to to do game scholarship because it is that experience. It is that experience um, that 
helps you with your scholarship. And and let me say this, and people are like, well, I'm not going to play Call of Duty. No, that's not what a gamer is to me. A gamer is not like the core gamer who plays like all AAA titles. A gamer can be anybody. A gamer can be anybody who plays games. And what, what counts as a game? It can be anything from Call of Duty and The Division to Mass Effect to playing Farmville on your phone. Um, mm. These are all games, right? These are all games. And if you play those games, in my mind, you are a gamer. So, and that's, and that's you know, some folks are like, that's not really a gamer. Yeah, yeah it is. But you know what? You can call yourself a game player if that makes you feel better. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so the other, the other part of this two-pronged question was about the research. Where, where do you think the research should be going in terms of game studies? Well, I mean, it depends. I think it's going to go in, it goes in different directions. It just depends on who's doing the research. It's And it mm-hmm. depends on what they want to find out, right? Um, for me uh, and who I am as a person, even before who I am as a, a, as a scholar, I cannot do research in an area without participating in that community. Mm-hmm. I can't because I don't think that I can get the kind of understanding that I need to have to do the work, um, which is interesting in some ways, but um, which is interesting in some ways, because then I find myself doing stuff like my work right now looks at representation and content creation. I'm a content creator. I've been a content creator since heck, since not your mama's gamer started in 2011. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> but I'm more of a content creator now because I'm looking specifically at live streaming um, and looking specifically at live streaming. So I've been, um, I'm a live streamer. That is part of my research. Uh, people are like, but you're a streamer and you're an academic. I'm like, those things don't, those things are not separate for me. Um, I'm, I'm a live streamer because I'm an academic and I'm an academic because I'm a live streamer and I, I need to be there and I need to um, be able to talk to people who exist in, and work in these spaces um, with an understanding that I don't think I could have otherwise. And then also talk from my own point of experience. I don't know. If is I there any, I, was, <laughs> I think you did. Okay. Is, is there anything else that you want to mention that we didn't cover? Um, I can rework it into a question or I can just leave that open-ended and let you go, whichever one. <laughs> No, that's a great. I like. I, I I do that to people all the time. It's like anything. Is there, is there anything that <laughs> you, I didn't ask you that you wanted me to ask you? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Um. And th- th- now I know how people feel when I ask that question. Um. <laughs> uh. Let's see. I think I I I want to suggest to people that they check out live streaming. If you don't, I mean, a lot of folks who don't watch streams, some people are like, I could never watch other people just play video games live and these are on like apps like twitch and things like that's for for the lay person like yeah for the lay person it's stuff like twitch it's stuff like mixer it's stuff like youtube gaming right and and people think automatically they're like i can't watch other people play games that's not just what content creators do right Mm. um content creators build communities um so there's conversation that goes on around these games. If you go into a stream, you can see that folks are talking about the game. Folks are talking about connections that they see to the game in the real world between this game and those games about what they had for lunch or dinner that day, right? So there, it, there, are, these, there are these communities and there are these discussion points and there happens to be gaming going on in that space at the same time. And I think that that's that's one of the most important things to understanding why live streaming is so important to folks. It's not just sitting there watching somebody play games. It's watching people play games and these other things. So I think that my biggest piece of advice is check it out. Check it out. You can even check out my stream. Where's (laughs) your stream at? That's what I was going to ask. How do we find you streaming? Um, I'm on Mixer. And... uh, I'm actually a partnered content creator on Mixer. Never thought that would happen. That just happened. What does that mean? It means I'm part in the same way that Twitch has partners. And so you are a, um, a member of like, basically your contract, you're contracted with the platform to create content. 
and you have to apply for partnerships. So you have to have certain, you have to meet certain metrics, you know, certain, a certain number of, you know, of followers, a certain um, number of concurrent viewers on average, that kind of thing. So you have to meet their standards to be partnered with them. Um, and then you have access to, you have access to other things that the platform has to offer in terms of uh, helping to grow your platform, if that makes gotcha. any sense. So what are you going to do this afternoon in uh, West West Lafayette? Is that where? Lafayette. Lafayette. Okay, so that's the thing. I don't know how to say that word. Uh-huh. Uh, being from Alabama, I have like I want to say Lafayette, but I now thank you for, ta- <laughs> for for finally imparting on me the knowledge I needed to know to say where the city of where Purdue is. Uh, so what are you going to do in in West Lafayette today this afternoon? Well, like I said, I uh, I I also homeschool, so I'll be homeschooling my kid. Okay. Uh, and I another another part of of like my research is that uh, I have lots of I have lots of video games and lots of like tech equipment in my house. Um, mm-hmm. And I've tried to condense it to my office space. So I have two desks in my office. One is like a more traditional desk space where there's a computer and there's a desk, and that's kind of where I sit and I write. And then I have a second it it kind of looks like a, a it kind of looks like a um what would you call it like a like a starship um captain's thing is that <laughs> i have i have like three monitors i have two computers i've got these big led light panels no that's the two computers i now have three computers cuz i had i bought a third computer this week um to get everything <laughs> set up and running um and i've got to set up this third computer um, because uh, it takes a lot of computing power and that's what people don't understand. And they're like, Oh, live streamers, they just go, they turn on their Xboxes or they turn on their PCs and they stream. No, this is, this thing is huge. It takes a lot of resources. It takes a lot of resources, um, uh, which is why, right. Things like representation is important, which is why getting like, like folks in the industry, game development companies, or tech companies or computer companies or peripheral companies to sponsor other folks who are not 18 to 25 year old cishet white dudes, right? Because Mm -hmm. the only way that you can keep this thing going and make yourself, continue to make yourself visible is to keep your stream running. And that is no small expense, you know, from the fact that you have to have this hardware to the fact that, and I was talking about this last night, I have gigabit internet in my house in, in, in freaking rural Lafayette. (laughs) (laughs) I have to have it though, if I'm going to be streaming, because that's the only way to push my content at the resolution that it needs to be for people to actually watch it. Because yeah, I can push blurry video, but nobody's going to watch it. Right. So um, you have to pay more. So I'm, is that like expensive internet? <laughs> it is pretty expensive, right? It it is more much more expensive than most folks have in their house, right? Yeah. And and this is something that you have to like constantly do, right? Is you're doing constant upgrades. Um, you're doing constant upgrades, and because you're pushing equipment to um, lens that is not supposed to be because this is home equipment, right? When you're talking about consoles, consoles are home equipment. Right. And you're pushing those and you're you're pushing those to a certain degree. You go through them a whole lot faster than you do if you just had an Xbox in your house and you were playing for fun. Right. right. So, you know, when you have um, like your 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 typical or stereotypical content creators who um, get sponsorships with different um, peripheral companies or computer companies. And they send you these things, right? They do, they send you these things for free and they're like, hey, just tell people you use our stuff on your stream and show it to them and show them what it can do. Then, then you know, it, you we can sell more. It's all marketing, right? But if they're only sending it to a certain population of folks and you have another population of folks who can't afford, who can't afford the stuff that they need to uh, to elevate themselves to a level that they could be visible. That also cuts down on visibility and representation in these spaces. So there's this huge, there's this huge thing. Everything's intertwined in this amazing way. Um, and this is all stuff in my mind that I would never have figured out if I didn't exist in this space. You got to be a part of the community. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Sam. 
and for joining me for this chat. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you and learn more about your research and get to know about more about Not Your, your Mama's Gamer for sure. Oh, thank you for having me on. I appreciate that. of the Big Rhetorical Podcast's Keystone Perspectives, a capstone podcast featuring a discussion with Dr. Samantha Blackman. The Big Rhetorical Podcast will be back in August with new episodes and the debut of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival. Make sure to stay attuned to our social media for more information this summer. I'm asking you to please write a review for the podcast. By writing a review, you will help the podcast's visibility across platforms on which the podcast is available. That's the primary thing we need right now as we take the next steps in expanding our reach. Thank you for your help with this. Okay, rhetorical listeners, make sure to download all episodes of The Big Rhetorical Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at The Big Rhett and find us on Facebook. You can email the podcast at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. And you can buy merch from our online store, cafepress.com slash tbrpodmerch. Until next time, be kind to one another and always be listening rhetorically. Rhetorically.